You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We are in week two of our new sermon series. We are doing the book of Genesis. As much as we can, we did the whole of Genesis 1. We are going to do the whole of Genesis 2 today. I promise you we will not do whole chapters every single week because that will be tedious and long. We need to put on our thinking caps today because I'm going to go fast. I kept you too long last week, and I, reg- I feel bad about it, genuinely. Like I know some pastors don't. I feel terrible about it. So instead of shortening my sermon, I'll just go twice as fast. Is that cool? Do you guys get that? Is that excellent? You feel good? Please, at any time, send some questions. I will do my best to answer those as we can, as they come in. Uh, That's the phone number. It'll be on the bottom of each screen. I'm throwing out some questions with you just to get your brain noggin moving. Like, why are Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 so different? Uh, As I said before, sometimes we don't ask the questions that the author of the scripture is asking. Sometimes we bring our own presuppositions and and what we've been told to the text instead of letting the text inform us and transform us. And so we sometimes are so uncomfortable with tension when we come up with a text that sounds different than another piece of scripture that we we get so uncomfortable with that that we try to gloss over the differences. And really, I'm here to tell you, if I can tell you one thing about mature reading of the Bible is that it's in the tension of these Bible texts that we really can find some spiritual nourishment and growth. The authors were not afraid of tension and, and clashing and trying to figure stuff out. So sometimes we read one and two as the same story. One's a, a, a big picture and one's a little picture, but they're, they're different. We're going to get into that. And you may ask that question, why are they different? Uh, why are God's names different? God has different names in this chapter. Uh, why is there a parade of animals? Um, hopefully your, your memory is being jogged about this story. Um, should Christians really get wrapped up in earth care? There's a word missing. Why is your beard so short? All valid questions. <laughs> Genuinely. Send them my way. Um, somebody already said that I said brain noggin. <laughs> I love it. Get your brain noggin wor- working. Last week we did Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is this majestic picture of the God of the universe speaking creation into existence through words, not through war, not through violence, not through tearing, not enslaving humanity. Uh, Really, these authors or this author is using all these uh, symbols of the Middle East because they all had their stories of creation. And and, and this author is taking these symbols and using them, but in a way to talk about how God, Yahweh, Elohim, is different. Not through war or violence is creation made. Not because humanity needs to be a slave is creation made. But because God loves us and God's love is poured out in such a way that it creates. And God calls that creation good. Last week I had you repeat some lines in Genesis 1. Every day begins with, and God said, to let us know that God effortlessly creates. And every day ends with, and it was evening and it was morning. Because in the Jewish reckoning of time, evening, when the sun sets, that's the beginning of a new day. It's evening and it's morning. And one of the things I forgot to tell you, because 
It's just trying to get us out of here, y'all. Is uh, the seventh day doesn't say, and it was evening, and it was morning the seventh day. And this is theologically important. There's no end to the seventh day because in God's good creation, the seventh day was supposed to last forever. We were supposed to rest in the goodness of God and in the goodness of what God has made as God's divine royal image bearers in this creation. But next week, we're going to learn about how that all goes awry. Today, we're doing chapter two. It's a little bit different. I call it the splitting of the atom, because if you know, Adam, good thanks. I appreciate it. I love a good pun. <laughs> two, four, if you ever see a letter, that's the half of the verse to 225. Let's get into this. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky. In Genesis chapter 1, God was, it was just God. It was Elohim, which is a generic word for God, but that was God's name in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, it's Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. We're getting a better, more specific picture of who God is. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2, in the beginning, God made the earth and the heavens. There's a reversal of what God is making, and that is supposed to give us a clue that this picture of creation is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be some cosmic God hovering over the waters, speaking things into existence. Uh, this Yahweh Elohim, the more, the more detailed God, is going to start with the earth. There's something going on with the earth in this picture. It's different. If we read with these detailed eyes, we'll see there's a lot of stuff going on. Different order at Genesis. I just told you all that. Before any wild plants appeared on the earth and before any field of crops grew, and because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed the human. Do you remember the order of Genesis 1? First, God creates the spaces, sky, land, and sea. What else? Help me out here. It's a quiz, because I'm forgetting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Sky? Time. Time. Light. And God creates time. God creates the sky and the sea, and God creates the earth. Those are the three things that God creates, those spaces. And then the next three days, he, he fills them with planets, and then with birds and fish, and then with plants, and then with humans. In this order of creation... There's nothing. There's no plants, no crops. There's earth. There's a stream. And God creates humanity, a human, Adam. Adam means human. It's unfortunate that uh, later Adam just gets to keep the name and Eve's got to come up with something else. But at this point, God's just creating humanity, a human one. So if we have eyes to see, it's different than Genesis 1. There's a different order going on. It's not all the animals and all the plants, and then on the last day, it's humans. It's humans first, because that Yahweh Elohim is starting with the earth, and he's going to start with this earth creature. It's different. Genesis 1 and 2, different, unified story. There's a lot of going on here. We could pick it all out. The Lord God formed the human, Adam, from the dust of the ground, Adama. There's a wordplay going on here. Really, it would be like, God formed the earthling from the earth. So what's going on here. Adam from Adama. 
This is where we get at Lent when I put ashes on you. From dust you were created and to dust you will go, right? This is, this is that story, that idea that humanity is, is created from the earth, Adam and Adama. God created the human from the dust of the ground, of the fertile land, and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. In the Greek, I mean, in the Hebrew, this is living soul, a nefesh, became a human soul. The ancient Christians saw so much profound stuff going on in this, that we are at once created, we are creatures, we are formed from creation, and also we are inspired, literally. We have the breath of God into us, and this is what brings us to life. This is what gives us life. We become a living soul. We come to life. I'm going to ask you about this later. This is, this is also on the quiz. One of the great theologians, his name is Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, you know Nazianzus, that beautiful city. Uh, in the 300s, he says, he says, it's like a cave with a light in it. That's what humanity is. It's like a cave, the earth, with a divine light in it, but the light can never go out. It's unquenchable and it's divine. This is how he understood what's going on here in humanity. That we get both. We are both at once creation and part of the creator in a sense. Then the Lord God plants a beautiful garden in Eden in the east. We don't know where it is. People have spent a long time looking for it. We'll get to that in the next slide. But it's somewhere in the east. Uh, and he put there, he put there the, the human, Adam, who he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord grew every beautiful tree. Remember in creation, God said it was good, it was good seven times. It is good, it is good, and it is very good. This is the first time that God has called anything beautiful. Beautiful. Trees. Trees are beautiful. Think about that. Right? I think they're beautiful. But also it's a setup for the next chapter when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit. But we're just kind of gearing our minds around this tree thing. God creates a, a beautiful garden, and in the middle, he puts a beautiful tree. And also in the middle, there is a tree of life, and there's also another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I don't have a lot of time to go into today, even though this is the most mysterious part and everybody wants to know about it. But what we learn from this is that humans aren't born immortal. They need, even though they have this divine breath blown into them, they have to do something to get immortality in this story. And also there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all I will say about it is, is at least in my growing up and in my hearing this story and thinking about this because I know what happens in the next chapter, is, is I assumed that this tree was bad. Uh, but God doesn't create bad stuff. It was good. Everything that God had created was good. And so the early Christians really saw this. This was a tree that God was going to let them eat of soon, this a tree of immortality. And this was a tree that he might let them eat of later after they grew up and became more mature. But ultimately what the early Christians wanted us to know was that God created a boundary. It's not bad. It's a boundary. You're not supposed to eat of it right now. Maybe someday when you get more mature. We have that with our children, right? There's things that are good, that they shouldn't be a part of right now, right? So the reason why we have an age limit for drinking, right? 
You can't drink until you're older because it'll mess up your brain. It's not bad. You can't do it yet. The same with sexual intimacy. It's not bad, but it would mess you up if you didn't wait for this boundary. This is how the early Christians understood this. It's not bad because God created it and it's good. God said God's good creation is good, but it is a boundary for us. That's going to be important later. I'm not going to read this whole slide, but essentially, then the author kind of goes on to describe that there's four rivers. Two of them we know of, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and those kind of surrounded Mesopotamia, which was the Fertile Crescent. If you're remembering back to like fourth grade geography, like this is where humanity is supposed to come from. And then there's two other rivers, the Gihon and the, um, help me out here. The name of the, oh, that's Tigris. Fourth river is the Euphrates. What's the first one called? Oh, the Pishon. Pishon again. We don't know what those are. I have no idea. One of them runs all the way to the land of Cush, which is Ethiopia. Uh, essentially, what the author is trying to say in this is that out of this garden that God created, it brings life to the rest of the world. This garden is an act of grace to us. It is a gift. And out of this beautiful garden, the rest of the world is given life. They got gemstones going on. They got all kinds of stuff, pure, pure gold, all kinds of stuff flows around the world. That's what's going on in this passage. Um, I said that the life of all creation is not uh, sustained graciously from God's goodness in his garden. I got home late last night, y'all. There's going to be a lot of typos. passage continues. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. This is our job. To farm it and to take care of it. To farm and take care of, literally in the Hebrew, is to serve and protect. To serve it and to protect it. This is what God has asked of these people to do to farm it and to take care of it, to serve and protect. Which got me thinking about police officers, right? Their motto is, I looked up their cars, canine, keep back. That's not their motto. That's dumb. That's a dub joke. I just saw canine keep back on like a million cars. To serve and protect, right? Uh, protect and serve in this way. They, they, they reversed it. The best of policing really is supposed to be this, to protect and serve. And this is what the Hebrew, uh, this is what the Hebrew author is trying to communicate with what the human's job was in creation, to serve and to protect. This is what God is asking the humans to do. Let's move on with our passage. It says, the Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. On the day you eat from it, you will die. This is what God says to the human one. You know those two beautiful trees I made in the middle of the garden? You cannot eat from one of them. We just went over the, the boundary that God creates. There was a study done. I have it here if you want to read it, if you're really into reading studies. It's from the American Society of Landscape Architects. These brilliant folks, they did a study about playgrounds. They did a playground where there was no fence, and they said that the kids stayed on the equipment. There was a, a sense of fear about wandering off. Then they did a, a playground where there was a fence, 
and the kids ventured out further and further away from the center and was able to explore the whole playground. And what they came to, the conclusion they came to, is that fences actually create freedom. That when the kids had a boundary that they could see, they felt more free to explore the space. Really, this is what the early Christians understood about these trees. This don't eat of this tree was a boundary for us to practice our obedience. And so, really, in a sense, creating more freedom for the things that we are allowed to do instead of focusing on a lot of these don'ts. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is perfect for him. So the Lord formed from the fertile land all the wild animals. Remember Genesis 1. All the animals were already made. Genesis 2. God's creating wild animals right now. And all the birds of the sky. And he brought them to the human one to see what he would name them. So we have this beautiful picture where Adam gets to name the animals. We love naming things. We talked about this last time. We name everything. Cars, boats, all kinds of stuff. And I just see this beautiful picture of, of, a, of a heavenly father bringing his new creation. And he's going, look at all this stuff I made. What do you want to call that one? And he's like, duck-billed platypus. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> Killing it. And then at the end of the day when he's tired, he's like, what do you want to name that one? He's like, I don't know, dog. <laughs> and God's like, isn't that my name just backwards? And he's like, they're, they're good boys. And he's like, what do you want to name that one? Cat? And God's like, that's not supposed to be here. Somebody else made this. <laughs> Just kidding. If you're a cat person, that's a joke. But there's this beautiful picture. I think I'm getting a new cat today, y'all. <laughs> to God be the glory. There's this beautiful picture of the Father bringing his creation to name what's going on. What we know is that it's not good for the human to be alone. And what we know is that God is not going to be the helper that is a perfect fit. And so it brings all the animals. And what we learn is that the animals are not going to be a perfect fit. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a, help, uh, a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. I'm going to skip this slide. I'm going to come back to it. So the Lord put the human into a deep and heavy sleep. It took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman who brought to her, what? And brought her to the human one, Adam. And Adam is so overwhelmed with gratitude that he breaks out in song or poetry, however you want to read it. Adam, Adam, says, the human one says, this one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. So she will be called a woman, Isha is the Hebrew, because from a man, Ish, she was taken. And so in getting to name the animals, the human one names this woman and he, and he gives her part of his name. This is how close he sees them, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And this is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. This is the beauty he sees in this new creation. 
of this woman, this helper. When they're writing about this, they're thinking about marriage. But Jesus comes along later and he says, we just did a marriage series, so if this is a shock for you, you might have missed some weeks. Jesus says, marriage isn't the ultimate goal. In fact, if you can be single, go ahead and do that as long as you can. Forever is better. If you can't, that's fine. Go ahead and get married. But singleness is the preference. And so we're going to talk about this in the sense of community. It is not good for humans to be alone. It isn't a call to marriage anymore. It's a call to community. And Adam is so excited to find his community that it breaks out in this beautiful song. But what's going on here? A lot of people have used this text to make all kinds of claims about women and men and the roles of men and women and, and I just men and women and I just want to break it down real quick. Sometimes when we hear the word helper, we think of assistant or secretary or some kind of subordinate who takes orders. That's 100% not the case. Remember, the man was looking for a helper. The word is ezer. It is used most often for God. I know you can't see it very well, but it says in Psalm 33, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. He is our ezer. But I am poor and needy, Psalm 70 says. Hasten to me, O God. Thou art my ezer. Almost every other use in the Old Testament of this word helper or help me, if you use the old King James Version, is the word ezer. And almost every other usage of it is about God. Helper cannot mean subordinate. Because God is not your subordinate if God is your Ezer. Yeah? Does that make sense? You feel me? Thanks, brother. The word for perfect fit. We need a helper who is a perfect fit for him. Translators have no idea what to do with this, with this word. It's ka neged. Ka means the same as. Neged means the opposite of. We are looking for a helper who is the same as, but opposite. I don't know how you feel about the other sex. The same as, but opposite. Do you know? Do you like get it? Do you feel? They're going to say perfect fit. But ultimately, this is what Adam is looking for. This is what God is helping Adam find. Is someone who does the same stuff, not subordinate, at least equal to in this passage, and someone who is the same as, but also the opposite of. A mate, companion. That's what's going on here. Nowhere in here does it imply less than, lesser than equal subordination. That is a reading that has been transported on the text. It is not there. Oh, I already said all this. You get it, huh? Moving in. We're almost done. We're wrapping up the reading of this text. Then we'll bust into our... Oh, we have one last slide. This is how it ends. And the two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. Or the old languages, they were unashamed. And just can you imagine a world where we're unashamed? I'm probably going to jump ahead a little bit. But when they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they don't become super geniuses. They become aware of each other's nakedness. And what I think is going on there is that when you take on the ability to make judgments, when you think you know what is right and wrong, and you see each other's nakedness, now you're, man, I love this guy. You guys take some cues from him. He's like, yeah, bring it. What's going on? I feel you're building to a point. 
When you're able to make judgments, you're able to make condemnations. And so they become embarrassed or ashamed of their nakedness because now they are worried and anxious and concerned that the other person will see their nakedness and condemn them and judge them and reject them. Can you imagine a world where we can live unashamed? Not, I mean, we're going to keep our clothes on. I'm not encouraging anybody. But can you imagine a world? And I think the church is supposed to be a place where we come judgment-free, unashamed. We bring our whole selves, and we get to practice what that looks like, and then let that spill out into the world. You know how I preach. Head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to feel or experience, something for us to do. What does God want us to know in this passage? If you have any answers to that, call them out. But before we get there, as you're thinking about that, where do we find Jesus in this passage? I just got two. As you're reading the Old Testament and you're a Jesus follower, I want you to always be thinking about where Jesus is. And here's where I see Jesus in this. The Father breathes humanity to life, blows breath into his nostrils, and Jesus breathes new humanity to life. This is what the early Christians saw. At the end of John, Jesus is raised from the dead. It is Easter Sunday. He comes in with his disciples, and he says, uh, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. You have vocation. You have closeness with God. And then Jesus breathes on them, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, If you forgive anybody, their sins are forgiven. I see shame being taken away. I see breath being blown on people. As the Father breathed humanity to life, the Christians want us to see that Jesus breathes new humanity to life. Last one. The tree of life was to give living souls eternal life. That's what the tree of life was for. And all the early Christians saw that Jesus' cross is the new tree of life that brings us back to life for eternal life. And so as you see that tree of life and as we talk about it next week, I want you to have in the back of your mind a picture of the cross. All over the place in the New Testament, they call his cross a tree. Jesus carried in his own body on the tree the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in justice and righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Okay, no feel do. What does God want us to know? You were made for closeness with God. And intimacy and unity and equality with each other. This is God's original design for your life. You were made for community with God and community with one another that is unifying and intimate and equal. My man, John Wesley, I bring this quote out four times a year. If you've heard it four times this year, I apologize, but I just love it. It feels so scandalous to me. He says, solitary religion is not to be found there in Scripture. Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. Doesn't that feel scandalous? Like you can't... Anyways, the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. And if I'm translating this for you, saying you can't grow in your relationship with Jesus without other people. You can't. There's no such thing as a holy solitary. Holy solitaries. You need the socialness of this. You were made for community. This is one of my favorite pastors of the 1900s, early 2000s. He died a few years ago. His name's Eugene Peterson. I got to meet him in person. He wrote beautiful books. He, he's a pastor to pastors. He, he says this, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. I talk about this a lot, but it's just so prevalent in this passage. We were not made to be by ourselves. It is not good for humans to be alone. Creation is made and it is good and it is good and it is seven days and seven times God says creation is good and good and it ends with creation being very good and the first thing that is not good is our aloneness. 
And that isn't a call for marriage. That is a call for community. We can have this type of community and intimacy and unity in all kinds of relationships. What does God want us to feel or experience inside of us? Unashamed and alive. God wants you to feel a lack of shame. Romans chapter 8, one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. We preached on it, I don't know, a few months ago. Begins with... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No shame. And God wants you to feel alive, literally inspired by the breath of God. This is a guy named Shay Serrano. I was reading his story. He's just kind of a cultural blogger, commentator. He writes books, a lot about sports. He tells this story about how uh, he was working construction and he was on the freeway and he'd just gotten off the freeway and his car died. Long day, hot day. He tried to push it to the side. He did. He got a tow truck to bring it home. It came home. He opened the hood. He says, I just jiggled some wires around. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was like, I identify with this precisely. I'm like, if me jiggling wires doesn't work, that's it. He says, my dad literally was born and raised in a mechanic shop because his house was on the property where his dad's mechanic shop was. But my dad lived three hours away. I wanted to do everything I could to not call him. He drove city bus for 10 hours a day. So he says, I ended up having to call my dad. I said, dad, I need your help. He said, I'll be there as soon as I'm off work, driving bus for 10 hours, and then I'm going to drive for three hours, and then I'll be there. And he said, his dad came, brought all his tools, Showed up, opened the hood, jiggled some wires. I'm like, see, this is where I get it. They ain't doing it too. I don't know. He says he grabbed a wrench. He went under the car. He hit some stuff, came back out, put his tools away, put them in the car. He said, we're done. He said, Dad, what's wrong? Do I, do I have to just buy a new car? Is it, is it dead? He said, it's out of gas. It's out of gas, man. He says, we got in my car. We brought a gas can. Went and got some gas. We put it in. Immediately started. Took my dad to get a hamburger. Paid him in, in food, which is also my love language. <laughs> he says, my dad got in his car and drove three hours back and then drove city bus for 10 hours the next day. And he said he never once brought it up. He said, to this day, nine years later, he's never given me a bad time. He's never made a joke at my expense. The first time this story is being told is him writing about it and blogging on a Father's Day episode of his blog. It just felt so connecting to the story of like the heavenly father making these beautiful creations, us blowing breath into it and just letting us like not know anything letting us live in a world where there's a lack of shame. Uh, I don't know if I'm that good of a dad, honestly. I love giving him a bad time. I feel like it instills character. But I resonate with this story so much of like making such a ridiculous mistake and someone not making you feel bad about it. Man, that's the kind of unashamed living that I want to be a part of. Lastly, what does God want us to do? Wrapping up here. There's three things. As I say, wrapping up, I have three points. <laughs> Purpose, permission, prohibition. 
Purpose, permission, prohibition. God gives us a purpose. God gives us permission. Eat of everything. Eat of everything. Purpose. Serve and protect creation. Prohibition. Don't eat of this tree. We need all three. You need all three. Uh, I was reading some scholars on this passage. This is one of the greatest Old Testament scholars in the world. His name is Walter Burgemann. And then I was looking at this picture and I was like, I was at this lecture. That's the church I went to in seminary. And I was like, was I there? And I was like, I was 100% there. That's me and Walter. Let me tell you how excited I was about this lecture. The day before, I Facebooked about it. The day before a theology lecture, I wrote, tomorrow night I'm going to a Kanye West concert. And by concert, I mean theology lecture. And by Kanye West, I mean Walter Brueggemann. But pretty much the same. That's how excited, this is how nerdy I am about this stuff. I don't care about Kanye West. I was more excited to see Walter Brueggemann. Like, this is how big of a lecture, this is how big of, of a figure this guy is in, in the study of the Old Testament. He says about this passage, I'm stealing directly from him. Human beings before God are characterized by vocation. Way to go. The primary human task is to find a way to hold all three facets of divine purpose together. Any two of them without the third is surely to pervert your life. So I tried to figure this out. We have to hold all three in tension, otherwise we get out of whack. God gave us a purpose, permission, prohibition. I don't know why this is going in a different order. I think purpose and permission only leads to an arrogance. Yeah? It leads to us feeling like we have this divine blessing and we can do anything we want and there's no boundary for us. We get to be an arrogant person. We get to be conceited. We get overwhelmed by this goodness that God has bestowed upon us. Our purpose and a prohibition, I think, makes us afraid. And here's how I was thinking about that. God has given you a direction in life and has told you there's something for you to do, but don't. If you focus on the don't, I think you're worried about missing it. You're worried about missing the, the, the thing that God has created you to do. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I squandered it. Maybe I'm not paying close enough attention. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. And so there becomes maybe an overwhelming feeling of fear. And then permission and prohibition... I think becomes legalistic. It becomes do's and don'ts. I get to do this. I don't get to do this. And so when you, have, when you have any two of those without the third, it makes your life out of whack, what Walter Brueggemann says. We need all three. And that is how I'm wrapping up. We need all three. We need direction. We need freedom. We need boundary. We need purpose. We need permission. We need prohibition. And this helps us thrive as that nefesh, that living soul that God has. And at least part of that purpose that God has designed you for is to serve and protect creation. If you have a question, send it now. We are out of time, so I'm going quickly. We will wrap it up, pray, and be on our way. I think this is from last week. I'm sorry I didn't answer your question. 
Why do your beard and your cat have the same length hair? This is a great question. <laughs> I appreciate you. My wife shaved our cat because it has really long hair, and she used my beard trimmer to do it. And she, I didn't check the blade thing. And so then I cut my beard with the short one. And that's why my beard and, I, and my cat have the same length hair. I appreciate Thanks for asking. Honestly, thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying my best not to blame her. I'm like, I didn't check the blade, but it's my beard trimmer. You know what I mean? Like, we'll get into blame next week. Oh, someone said in Battlestar Galactica, the captain of the ship is William Adama. They're restarting humanity. There's a Genesis 2 passage there. He is the human one. Great question. So um, in Genesis 1, when God creates humanity, God says, let us create humanity in our image and in our likeness. And Christians read this to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a, as a triune community, one God creating humanity in God's own image and likeness. And so someone said in chapter 2, why doesn't God say, I will make him a helper? Why doesn't, why doesn't God say, we will make him a helper? So honestly, here's the scholarship on it, is that these were two different stories written down, and the authors just tried to sew them together into one cohesive story, second one. And so the scholarly answer is that they're just different stories and the author is using a different name. I think a more faith-based theological answer is that we believe God to be three in one. And so sometimes the threeness of God is going to be emphasized when God is creating, the community of God is creating out of love. And I think sometimes the oneness of God is going to be emphasized. And so in chapter one, we get this Yahweh Elohim, this one God, this one figure who is walking in the garden in the coolness of the garden and, and bending down and breathing. And so the author here wants to focus on the oneness of the God. That would be my faith-based answer. Is that it's both. Great. Let's, let's summarize this and be on our way. Thank you for your questions, everyone, and your Battlestar Galactica references. God wants us to know that we were made for community. You were. You cannot grow in the spiritual life without it. God wants you to feel alive and unashamed. This is how God originally designed us, and this is what Jesus is doing as he works his transformation in us through the cross to bring you to a place where you feel that breath of God within you and you feel that lack of shame that you were originally designed for. And God wants us to hold the tension between purpose, permission, and prohibition as God's people stewarding creation, serving and protecting. Here's your spiritual practice. I'd love for you to just do something to care for the earth this week. Just one thing. I don't know. You don't have to believe everything I believe about stuff going on in the earth. But at the end of the day... Caring and serving and protecting creation is what we were designed to do. It brings us into alignment with our creative order. And so do something. Care for the earth this week. Pray with me. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being near us. Thank you for creating us so majestically. Thank you for stooping down and breathing into us. We are your special creation. 
And you want to convey a closeness to you, a likeness to you, that you are not distant and far away. Yes, you create the stars with just a word, but you also stoop down and breathe breath into our noses. You are the God who is sovereign above all, and yet the God who binds up the brokenhearted and cares deeply for his loved ones. So, Father, we just pray that we experience that, that that knowledge about our closeness to you would be real in our lives. And that as it becomes more and more real, we would begin to feel what you want us to feel, alive, unashamed as your divine ones, with the humility of keeping in balance what we were designed to do, that freedom that you set us free to be and do in the world, but also knowing our boundaries so we know how to stay close to you and not veer so far away. We pray that this time of communion would be a time that, where you help us to do exactly that, that you would meet us here and you would give us the spiritual nourishment to draw close to you, to feel those things you want us to feel as you work in our hearts and lives. We'll give you praise and thanks. Table Church, would you pray with me the Lord's Prayer? Sins today, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.